Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Benjamin Beau-Dade. He writes and does podcasts for thelotuseaters.com, which is Sargon of Akkad, a.k.a. Carl Benjamin's platform or boarding school in the sky. And he does a lot of stuff focusing on history. He's a really big uh, history aficionado or enthusiast or history nerd. In this conversation, we talk about the War of 1812, which was between the United States and the British Empire, also involving Canada and the Native Americans. And listening to Bo's knowledge on the events of 1812 and before and afterwards has filled in the gaps for me about understanding the United States growth from an idea to a country, then to a sovereignty, and then finally into a world power. And the events in 1812 and environs really set the stage for what America would become and think of itself in the world. If you're not already a history nerd, I'm sure you will enjoy your time nerding out on history for the next hour and some minutes. And without further ado, here is Bo. Dead. I've always loved history since since the smallest child. I remember being taken to the British Museum and various castles and ruins, some of my earliest memories. And um, I've just mm. always loved the stories. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is, uh, especially for this story, the, the War of 1812, is that it's not really glorious for either America or Britain. It's actually quite embarrassing for both parties. Um, but I think it's funny you should mention the way we use it as a political tool for the present. Um, the, one of the angles I wanted to sort of talk about or maybe mention before we start about the War of 1812 is that history doesn't always, I believe, doesn't always have to be fantastically serious. You can look back at it sort of with uh, with sort of a wry smile on your face, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I think if, if the... Uh, if the British and the uh, the English and the Germans and the French are sort of maybe cousins, I feel like the Americans and the British are, are really brothers. Mm. Um, and so when we have wars with each other or had wars with each other, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, sort of a brothers uh, exchanging blows at yeah. Christmas like or a wedding. There's a sense of <laughs> and embarrassing. a lot, yeah. Yeah, and it's sort of embarrassing, but you can, years later, you can sort of look back and, and laugh about it almost. Hmm. Um, and I think maybe the War of 1812 is, is sort of one of those. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways you could look at it, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Because some people take history so very, very seriously that when they were beaten here or there, that they still feel... Uh, somehow hurt in immediately by that okay. yeah. or, or they take a lot trauma. of glory from the winds and they still feel bad about the losses i don't think that's a very helpful way of looking at history mm -hmm. it's just stories you or i weren't there we had nothing to do with it you know um so you know don't, you don't have to be that serious about it <sighs> well what about 1812 do you think makes it not very well known. What is it about mm. the uh, kind of the events or the series of events 
that make it something that we don't really feature that much in our current discourse. Hmm. You apologize. Um, yeah, well, I think because it is quite embarrassing, neither side wins. I think people are used to wars. When, when you look back at, say, for example, World War II, there was a very, very, very definite winner mm-hmm. <laughs> to that, mm-hmm. you right. know. Uh, and actually, when you look back through the sweep of history, that's relatively rare. Uh, wars, you know, seldom really end that decisively. Um, you can have all sorts of shades of grey of how they end, whether one side sort of beaten in the field but actually wins on paper or vice versa, or where there's some sort of kind of embarrassment for both sides and you have to have some sort of uh, weird treaty which neither side's happy with, neither get their war goals. And the War of 1812 is one of those. It's sort of a scrap between brothers or between cousins. Both sides are sort of embarrassed by it. Neither neither win. (laughs) You know, you can't really say either win. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can talk about that in detail. Different historians argue over who won, who lost, whether it was a draw, all that kind of thing. Well, if, if we're talking about winning, then we have to understand the conditions. What is the war about you have to decide mm. that before you can understand you know if there's a right. conclusionary conclusion right i mean time. even that about the war of 1812 is argued about people argue about what the what what the sort of war aims were on both sides mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i mean we can jump straight into that from the american side um they they talk about impressments you know about naval impressments press gangs so this is back when military activity was very strong by both the British and the Americans. And there was a lot of naval activity in the Atlantic. And, uh, right, so this is, um, can you, Britain at this time is still at the height of its uh, world empire, and that's all through shipping, right? Is that the context? Well, Britain ruled the waves. We have the biggest navy in the world easily. Um, so to put it in t- some perspective, m- most people that are history nerds probably know the year 1812 as the year when Napoleon marched on uh, Moscow. Um, so it's in the middle, or well, actually not in the middle, it's at the end, the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars, which you can describe, I think, fairly accurately as a world war, a type of world war that lasted for 20 years, multiple coalitions against Napoleon, and just very broad strokes of the brush here. Napoleon controlled the continental Europe controlled the land and Britain ruled the waves, controlled the sea. And we were essentially blockading the whole of Europe. Hmm. <laughs> now our, our, our war against Napoleon did rely heavily strategically in the grand sense on having a giant all powerful Navy. And part of that was that it, it, it swelled to even bigger than it might have been, or even bigger than it would have been to the point where we had like a thousand ships had like a hundred or a couple of hundred first rate ship of the lines, the biggest ships of the time. So that's giant. That's a huge Navy. And of course that would have cost a fantastic amount and needed tens of thousands of men at any given moment to be sailors in the Royal Navy. Um, so much so that we decided we had a thing called orders in council where the Royal Navy uh, <laughs> had orders in council. And part of that was um, that we would impress any sailors that we thought we needed into the Royal Navy. You basically take them against their will. Um, and a lot of the people in the Royal Navy, or men that were merchant Navy guys, it was better, it was much, much better in that period to 
be American, to claim that you're American. <laughs> it was just a better deal for quite a few different reasons, money and conditions and mm -hmm. uh, having to go into battle potentially. Um, mm -hmm. So we had a lot of our merchant sailors or, or even actual members of the Royal Navy had uh, gone over to America and just um, decided to be American. Um, the citizenship was a lot more fluid back then. Um, and so where Britain was the most powerful country in the world, really, at that point, um, and America was really a second-rate power, certainly in the naval sense. Uh, we, the Royal Navy, really bullied its way up and down the uh, East Coast and the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And whenever we would find a ship, uh, we would board it um, and see if there were any Englishmen on board that we could impress into the Royal Navy. Now, uh, the degree to which that went on, the number of men this actually happened to is up for debate some say it's not very many at all and some say it's thousands and thousands of guys either way it's slapping the face to america mm -hmm. it really is i mean there's, there's no way to deny that it's, it's it's taking the mickey really out of out of the americans it's you know um, it's, it's it's not on really and america had uh, since the days of jefferson had been very angry about this and had uh, formally asked uh, the crown repeatedly to stop doing it um, but because we were at war, because we were at war with Napoleon, it was kind of a matter of life and death. It was kind of sort of all important, or at least politically, some could make the argument. People did make the argument. Uh, Lord Liverpool or um, Castle Ray, the foreign secretary, would say, no, our nation depends on this impressment on, on these orders in council. So, no, we're not going to stop it. You're just going to have to put up with it. Um, <laughs> so, in the how were they able to tell what a British person was? Did they just listen to the accent? Was that the marker when they board a ship? How do they know? Yeah, it's very, it's very unclear. <laughs> and that's part of the problem. They, yeah. Some said, you know, I'm an American. I was born in Delaware or whatever. How dare you enslave me into the Royal Navy? Uh, quite often it was by accent. Sometimes it was off, quite often by tattoos. But whatever it was, it wasn't really written in stone. It wasn't really yeah. a very, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't very uh, well-defined at all. That's part of the problem. And when you're impressed, uh, let's just say I'm an American, but I have a British tattoo or something. All of a sudden, I'm doing my jib work, and then the British board, and then they take me. They impress me. What is my conditions at that point? Do I expect some sort of severance pay when it's over? Is there a pension? Is there pay? Or is it just I'm now enslaved? When you mean in, when you say enslaved, am I really enslaved? I have no rights until they no, dispense no, with me no. or canon does. No, not that. When I say enslaved, I don't mean in sort of um, in, the, in the truest sense. I mean that you're taking a, against your will. Uh, but no, I mean, you had all sorts of rights as a member of the Royal Navy. I mean, you're given all sorts of rations and, and lots of rum. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and and pay. Um, so, no, it's not a true enslavement in sort of the like, cotton-picking South sense. Yeah. Um, of course, all through the ages, there's all sorts of degrees of severity of enslavement. I mean, in ancient Rome, for example, slavery was quite different to the American South. I mean, you could be emancipated. Freedmen, people that had been freed from being a slave, could quite often go on to have gigantic mm -hmm. fortunes or estates. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all sorts of different types of slavery throughout the ages. But the Orders in Council was one of the things that sort of formally, James Madison, the president at the time, uh, who's a very small, introverted, intellectual man. I'm a big fan of him, actually. Not really a, a strong George Washington type. Um, he, he had decided that 
because America did declare war on Britain in 1812. It wasn't the other way around. They declared war. They said, we've had enough of this. Um, and, and, and you can only imagine that at the time, that's, well, it's somewhere between very ballsy and completely insane. Really? Um, on okay. paper. Well, because, uh, because of Britain the uh, asymmetry of power. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The 13 states, or rather 15 states, as it was at the time, 15 colonies at the time. Um, yeah. On paper, just was, it was not going to be any kind of contest. Um, but yeah, they did declare war because there was a very, very strong hawkish faction in Congress at the time. Um, in 1810, there was a new Congress and there was a, a new sort of wave of politicians that hadn't been in Congress before. They hadn't really known the Revolutionary War. Uh, younger guys uh, hadn't really known war and they were very hawkish hmm. and they decide they convinced James Madison to sort of uh, suggest war to the <laughs> to the Congress or he had a uh, was it a letter a war letter literally I think that's what it's called oh a war message Madison reads his war message to Congress and ends it by basically saying Cong Congress may wish to consider what to do next <laughs> in other words you know we let's go to war and he won the vote on that it was apparently it was relatively close but he won the war on uh, won the vote on that so America declares war on Great Britain now Britain is a very very low ebb I mean, a very low ebb. Um, Napoleon in that year is is far from defeated. We know that quite soon the Grand Armée is turned back from Moscow, and that's the beginning of the end for him. But in the spring of, of 18 or summer of 1812, Britain's in quite a, a tough spot. Napoleon's still riding higher. Um, our Prime Minister, uh, Spencer Percival, had just been assassinated, um, so had <laughs> just been murdered. So we were at a relatively low ebb. And uh, some have said, some in Britain at the time, viewed it that, that America was, was stabbing us in the back to some mm -hmm. degree. There's an element of that to it, that, that, that they realised that they could maybe take advantage of our, of our weak position. Because um, there's a bit more going on, actually. There is the uh, sort of global strategic uh, position to think about. I mean, I say we say it's a war between Britain and America, but it's much more complicated than that. It's really more like a four-way war. The Canadians are a big part of this, huge mm -hmm. part. In fact, they're the only uh, faction, if you like, the only nation that, um, well, they weren't entirely their own nation at that point, but they're the only ones that come out of this not really embarrassed or humiliated or defeated. <laughs> uh, if there's anyone that actually remembers the War of 1812 fondly, it's the Canadians. And but then there's also, oh, sorry, go on. The Canadians, they're still subjects to the crown, but they have some yeah. measure of autonomy. Absolutely, that's exactly, exactly right. There and were, there are they looking Canada? And are, 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 is the Canadian US relation in a good place at that point, or is it kind of mm. touchy? Nope. No. America, <laughs> the United States always had designs on Canada. They always wanted Canada. In fact, uh, just a few years before, Jefferson had um, famously said, so famously that I can't recall it off the top of my head. Uh, oh, yeah. Jefferson had said that to invade, successfully invade and, and annex Canada, uh, the British colonies of Upper and Lower Canada would be, quote, a, a mere matter of marching. Okay. That's, uh, that's a fairly famous quote 
of Jefferson. In other words, it would be a, a cakewalk. It'd be a pushover. All we have to do is actually just march up there and, and that's the end of that. Well, yeah. and, well, the War of 1812 proves that particular statement to be completely wrong. Okay. Um, but we'll get into it in a bit. Another one, the faction, one of the big ones is the Native Americans, uh, largely under uh, more of a federation of different tribes, certainly in the north, in the Canadian theatre, under Tecumseh. Um, uh, it, it, do you know much about the life and career of Tecumseh as an American? No, is that not no. sort of taught in your schools when no, you're a child or no, anything? Unfortunately, oh, no. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, we'll get into him a bit as we as we go Please. on. Uh, yeah. But there's also um, there's also, as I say, there's the French and the Spanish are also involved. I mean, Florida is a Spanish holding at this point still, and and the French, as as, as you can imagine, it's just it's just a world war. They're still involved. So. The Louisiana Purchase is an important, an important part of this. Sometimes gets skated over in the age of Jefferson, which is only one president before Madison. Um, he had famously bought a fantastically large amount of land. The Louisiana Purchase, if you look at it on a map, it's it's ridiculous. Millions and millions and millions of square miles, uh, square meters, uh, square miles would it be? No, it couldn't be. Yeah, it can be miles or meters, <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> it's just a gigantic swathe, like almost a, a third or a quarter of the middle of America. Uh, yeah. That belonged to Spain. And when Napoleon <laughs> took over Spain, uh, invaded Portugal and Spain, uh, it was he, he took it. And then he realized that he couldn't hold it. And rather than let the British just walk in, he, he calculated it'd be oh. better to sell it to Jefferson. Okay. So in a relatively short space of time, if you lived out there, um, you went from being a Spanish subject to a French citizen to a US citizen very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a funny, very, I think, very interesting uh, period uh, or, or, or a bit of history there, the Louisiana Purchase. And from the British point of view, that's, uh, that, that's not on. That wasn't really fair. That wasn't Napoleon's to sell in the first mm -hmm. place. <laughs> Britain apparently looked at it as though that was land that was theirs to move into at some point. Hmm. And uh, Jefferson bought stolen goods, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's a big part of the sort of British side to uh, try and nullify that or, or take that back in many ways. Well, how I, I'm just looking at the map in my head. You have in order for Britain to rule that they have to go around the Americas then how would they possibly be able to do that and then swallow <laughs> the rest of that continent? There's no, uh, yeah. Well, when you look at the map in 1812, you still don't, you're not very far. You, the United States hasn't stretched that far West, yeah. has it? Yeah. I mean, when's the Lois and Clark mission? Um, well, regardless of that, <laughs> people had sort of barely really gone out to California. Not very many people had gone out to the West coast yet. Mm -hmm. And the actual formal States, don't stretch very far westward. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the same goes for Canada. When you look at the upper and lower Canada, it's completely on the East Coast. Um, so all the rest of the Americas, North American continent, really, uh, was still up for grabs. Um, yeah, it's not that crazy to think that Britain might have designs on all of Canada and all of Central and Western continental United States okay. and yeah. only the East coast would remain the United States. It sounds um, like a pipe dream, but they can, they can think whatever <laughs> they want. They, they're riding high anyways, but it seems like they're a naval power. I don't know how they would control that much land. I don't know, but maybe yeah. they had some sort well, of sketches somewhere. Also had a very strong army. I mean, we had uh, an army that uh, was capable of defeating okay. Napoleon. 
um, in the Peninsular okay. War, for example, we had a very strong army and the United States had relatively weak army. In fact, it's during this war that um, the United States really start drilling regular troops properly <laughs> okay. for the first time instead of oh. militias or, um, or, oh. or regular troops that only come out seasonally. It's really during the War of 1812 and their embarrassments at the beginning of it where they decide, okay, we need to get serious about this, <laughs> about fighting, having okay. men under arms. Yeah. Um, whereas the English, or the British rather, uh, had uh, among the best armies in the world and large as well, you know, much, much bigger than the United States could field at that time. Uh, but, but again, it's because we've been fighting Napoleon for 20 odd years. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So th there's these orders in council and the, the impressment of men, uh, which America was very annoyed with and that Britain were interfering with uh, the United States trade all along the East coast and in, in the, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, because we controlled the waves uh, we were able to sort of screw with your maritime trade <laughs> massively. Mm -hmm. And and that's, again, it's not on, it's, it's a slap in the face. It's, so it's treating you like a second rate nation. And you all are impressing our goods as well as our men. Yeah, oh yeah. If and when saying. we need to, if, if uh, the policy was to deny France or Europe uh, trade and goods. So if we think, for example, a ship is going from, um, from New York uh, over to um, Boulogne or something yeah. for, for France. Yeah, we would, we would just take that. Uh, part of the orders in council, I mean, I've got it here, the wording is very antiquated, difficult to understand, difficult to read, let alone understand. I can read it real quick. Mm -hmm. It says, um, it is hereby ordered that no vessel shall be permitted to trade from one port to another, both which ports shall belong to or be in the possession of France or her allies or shall be so far under their control as that British vessels may not freely trade. It goes on and on and on, but it basically says, it basically says that we could do more or less whatever we, whatever we want on the seas, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which just yeah. isn't fair. You know, it's just not fair. Um, so, uh, you know, being, being British, uh, you know, I do, I, 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 it is worth pointing out when, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely partisan. Um, and before the War of 1812, there were incidents which sort of led up to it. I mean, one, one of the more important, one of the more famous ones, perhaps, is um, there's one of the more famous ships, uh, one of the more famous US frigates, heavy frigates, was the USS Chesapeake. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, the USS Chesapeake. This and is reminding that, me of the Patrick O'Brien novels. There's one that's set, and he, he he did a whole series of naval uh is this master and commander yeah master and commander yeah yeah, yeah. and uh it's, it's like 22 books long and one of them is about 1812 and i think it brings up this boat or this sorry the ship <laughs> <laughs> yes there's there's the chesapeake leopard incident where one of our heavy frigates the leopard um just sort of fired on the chesapeake just sort of unprovoked just sort of sailed up to it gave it a couple of broadsides <laughs> uh, and, and, and this is in like 1807 so a fair few years before but it's yeah. one of the more famous instances where it's just it's just whichever angle you want to look at it it's just unfair we boarded the chesapeake and took i think only four guys abducted four guys impressed four guys hmm. from there into the royal navy but it was one of those incidents that james madison or in a, in a couple of years time and the hawk faction hawkish faction uh, would point to that and say you know we can't have that anymore we really yeah. can't have that it, it's too it's too humiliating mm -hmm. um so france is going around and bullying all of europe including britain and then britain is kind of standing up against napoleon so they think that they're you know fighting the bully but britain's also bullying america 
then. That's kind of what, what's going on. Everybody's just kind of exerting their power. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, we were never bullied by Napoleon. We were, he bullied nearly everyone else, but yeah. the people that stood up to him, well, he never successfully invaded Russia. He burnt down Moscow, but then had to leave. And uh, at, at the end of it all, the Cossacks entered Paris. <laughs> in in uh, 1814 okay. uh, and and we the brits that stood up to napoleon and there was a peninsula in spain which over many many years where uh, sir arthur wellesley later to become the duke of wellington eventually defeated napoleon's marshals in spain and it, in the end the, in 1814 the, the the english and the russians well a, a grand coalition finally defeated napoleon and, and entered paris mm. so us, uh, Britain and the Russians were the, the main parties that hmm. sort of refused to bow down, refused to be beaten. Um, hmm. But yes, yeah, certainly Britain was sort of going around bullying people to some degree mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in order to keep the whole thing going. Because one of the things, again, a fairly broad stroke of the brush here, Britain bankrolled the wars, the many wars, the many coalitions against Napoleon. Britain bankrolled all of those. I mean, we controlled large, a large proportion of the world's commerce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were very rich, mm-hmm. relatively. Um, and so we paid for it all. But as I say, to keep that going, you had to do relatively, or they, they made the calculation at the time that they, they thought they had to have these orders in council, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's draconian. It is draconian. Um, and so, I mean, there's other instances where there's a British ship called the Macedonian, uh, which was which was lost. Um, there's another one where uh, the USS President President versus uh, one of our ships called the Little Belt, which again was a, a US victory. Um, now, that's uh, that's quite rare for Britain to lose three frigate engagements in a row. <laughs> okay, that's rare. I mean, this is one in the column for uh, the US where it's uh, not embarrassing. It's kind of glorious, really. The French were never able to win three frigate engagements in the in a row against the Royal Navy. So that's yeah. really quite something. Um, the, uh, the US didn't have a huge, certainly didn't have a very big navy. But some of the ships they did have, some of their newer heavy frigates were were excellent, though. They were excellent. They were a match almost for the ship of the line. The best, the most powerful ships were first rate ship of the line. Hmm. Um, but frigates, heavy frigates were sort of not far off sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, Britain, once we'd, once we'd had war declared on us, just felt like we'd been stabbed in the back for some reason. It <laughs> didn't really take on board that we'd been, uh, we'd been out of order really for, with these orders in council for many years previously. We just thought that, uh, we needed to teach uh, the Yankees a lesson for being sort of insubordinate. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, again, it's very high-handed, isn't it? Uh, a very high-handed sort of attitude to have. I mean, um, you know, um, in war sometimes uh, different nations get a nickname. Um, like in World War One, the Brits were called Tommies and we would call the Germans Fritz, things like this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. At the time, Britain, uh, a nickname for the Americans was Jonathan if you can believe mm, that. Interesting. <laughs> so in, yeah, I don't know exactly where that comes from. Um, uh, but at the time in the papers in London, uh, the, the line was very much um, that we need to teach Jonathan a lesson. Um, in fact, there is uh, quotes of people saying we should give Jonathan a, a bloody good drubbing. <laughs> yeah. We should smack their bottom like a naughty child or, a, yeah. or, or, or a, 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 yeah, like a, drub them like a, a naughty spaniel. 
to get them back in line. That was sort of how a lot in a lot of people in Britain thought about it. And um, of course, there's quite a lot of hubris there when you know how it all ends. <laughs> it's quite a yeah. lot of hubris there. It wasn't as simple as that or nowhere near. Um, yeah, but that's that's sort of what we're dealing with. Um, I mean, it was it was a it was a tough call, a, a strong call, really, from James Madison, who's very small man, physically small, very quiet, apparently, quite introverted, really into his books, very intellectual. In fact, it's it's him and and, and Jefferson um, who are sort of considered the, sort of the main architects of the Constitution. Um, so these are very cerebral guys. Madison's sort of quite a cerebral person. He, uh, you know, he's not like uh, a Washington or an Alexander or, or, or Hannibal or whatever. He's not really a martial leader. <laughs> and yet, just due to politics, that is, uh, I mean, his wife, Dolly Madison, uh, was much more extroverted and much more gung-ho <laughs> about okay. all these things. How did, um, could we just sketch how Madison ends up in the presidency? Yeah, uh, yeah well... well um, sure. I mean, he's one of the leading lights. He—he's he, like I say, he's been around since since the uh, Revolutionary War, uh, the War of Independence, rather. <laughs> That's what you guys call it, right? The War of Independence. Yeah. We call it the Revolutionary War. It's the same thing. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's he's sort of a, a big player. He's been he's always been around. So he's sort of has always been one of the leading lights. Um, it was sort of not quite his turn. That's you know yeah. quite glib to say that. Yeah. Uh, but, but there was he, something he, about that kind of succession of uh, yeah. the founding fathers kind of yeah absolutely after george washington the G general washington after his terms ended you've got john adams who again is one of the key key players in it all and then jefferson who i would argue i think a lot of people might argue is um you say leading lights of the founding fathers for me jefferson is right up there with the most important um, he, the, his his political writings are among the most important. Um, or, although it was a collaborative work, I think the, the the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and all that sort of thing. Without Jefferson, things would have looked very very different. Okay. And and Madison was just you know part of that clique, part of that cabal. Um, yeah. Cabal is probably an unfair word, um, <laughs> but so yeah, he was always uh, he, 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 if he wanted that highest office, they called it what did they call it? Like sort of the top magistrate or, or, or the, the senior magistrate. Um, he he was always if he wanted to go for it, it, it could have been his. He, in other words, he he had a lot of gravitas, a fantastic amount of gravitas, really. Um, and so, yeah, when he gets in, that is what he decides to do. Um, he's, they've had enough of impressment. They've had enough of their trade being strangled. Um, and, and, um, and also, one of the other main reasons for war, as far as the Americans are concerned, is that the British, as part of our general stratagem to screw <laughs> with Jonathan, <laughs> was to incite the Indian tribes, the okay. Native American Indian tribes, to just be... Um, <clears throat> Well, to not behave themselves really on the frontiers, and you, you can imagine that Congress or the leading politicians of the day, uh, again, just view that as as you know, it's not cricket really. Like mm. it's just really, it's not, it's not fair. It's not, it's not right that they should be doing that as far as the people in the United States are concerned. So they've got multiple reasons why they would want to, you know, check britain in some ways mm -hmm. um yeah and so yeah that's sort of what the the, the main reasons um 
so yeah once it kicks off um we get straight into the, the canadian stories uh because okay. once it kicks off in 1812 like i say it's a little bit of a stab in the back to some degree a little bit of a preemptive war britain didn't really see it coming and we're right in the middle sorry <laughs> we're right near the end but still heavily embroiled within the Napoleonic wars in europe so we can't just send tens of thousands of guys over there right away so in other words when america declare war in 1812 um they've got sort of that first summer almost free <laughs> to do as they please um and what they decide to do because it's been their um it's been sort of on their strategic map for quite a while is to invade canada <laughs> so that's okay. what they do they put together um a large body of men and have a, a three-pronged attack into canada um so i mean you're frowning here which is interesting because i do think a lot of americans don't know that or aren't aware of that i think a lot of canadians do know about it are aware <laughs> and i think most americans don't all this sort of thing is just new it'd be new to them is that fair yeah. to say do you think uh, yeah i'm i'm uh i'm terribly underread in american history uh which i should be more embarrassed about but i'm only going to be so embarrassed <laughs> about because i am american after all <laughs> so we uh, march in there and canada canada which is semi-autonomous but still um, alleged to the crown there's probably a better word for that but um they're what do they do they're like what the heck are you doing yanks or maybe they have some sort of weird name for us like timmy or something i don't know <laughs> well yeah so i mean canada isn't there is no actual canada actually you know as, as a sovereign state as it is today um hmm. but it is sort of it does have its autonomy to some degree i mean uh, there's uh sir george provost or provo however you want to pronounce that is the the brit the british governor of uh one of the canadas there's there's two provinces or two colonies there upper and lower canada hmm. um and, um, and and though they belong to the crown, I mean, they still do now. The, the, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, is still the head of state of Canada to this day, isn't she? Um, so, you know, you still have the, the, the royal mounties and the Queen mm -hmm. is on their money and things. Um, so then, but then it was, uh, yeah, they were two, two colonies, really, of Upper and Lower Canada. But, but they had their autonomy to some degree. They had their own identity. In fact, lots of historians say that it's this War of 1812 which forges a Canadian identity in, in in a more real sense, mm -hmm. um, in a lot more real sense. But Britain had kicked the French out, um, well, not entirely, obviously, <laughs> but had won decisively some bit, some big battles in Canada against the French, uh, uh, taking Quebec, and Captain Wolfe, and uh, the, the the Seven Years' War. And uh, there's lots and lots of stories, uh, perhaps for another day. Um, but yeah, it belonged to Britain, basically, but the Canadians had their own identity. Um, so, and America had always coveted that land, you know, this, this idea of a, uh, a of a manifest destiny, that yeah. it's the United States destiny to control all of continental America all the way to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Well, back then, that included Canada, all the way up to the North Pole, all of it. <laughs> they thought, mm. inevitably, this will be our land. And so part of that at that time was that let's in, invade Canada. Um, and so they do. They, it's quite a concerted, well, it's very concerted effort. They have at uh, first three prongs of attack. Um, uh, at Detroit, uh, across, the Canada, across the border at Detroit, um, and one at sort of Niagara. The Niagara Falls, and a third one even further north up by the St. Lawrence River into sort of towards Montreal. 
Um, and to cut the story ever so slightly short, all three fail ignominiously. Hmm. <laughs> right. um, now, you can imagine uh, what a boon that is for Canadians. What a, a, an absolute win that is as yeah. far as Canadians are concerned. You know, the Americans, the Yankees thought that they it was, just, it was a mere matter of marching, remember Jefferson said. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, the Canadians stroke Brits, stroke uh, Native American Indians, uh, turned them back. And actually, in this first year of 1812, turned them back with relative ease. I say relative, I mean, it's not as simple as that. Well, the first one uh, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, fought Detroit. <laughs> it's not really a full city like Detroit is today. Is fought Detroit. Um, they invaded across there a, a general hull. Um, and, um, well, <laughs> the the Brits, sort of the Canadians, saw it coming and uh, counterattacked him, and he completely lost his nerve and mm. ended up surrendering Fort Detroit without uh, a, a shot fired. The the, the the Canadians and the British bombarded it with cannons for an afternoon, and he quite literally lost his nerve and was found sort of drinking and dribbling on himself oh. and, 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 and asking for, uh, <laughs> for uh, surrender um, and, uh, and, and was given it. And in fact, that's one of the only time. in fact, the only time, I believe, um, that uh, an American possession was surrendered without a shot being fired in all of history. So it's really quite embarrassing from the American point of view that, mm-hmm. and uh, again, a great win that the Canadians sort of dying out on to this day. I think <laughs> if you find a Canadian <laughs> history nerd, they'll probably know about, they'll probably know all about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one of the other, the other ones was um, at Queenston Heights, which is just on the other side, the Canadian side of the, um, uh, of the Niagara. Um, in fact, th- today it's a place called Niagara on the Lake. Um, and and the Americans were were pushed back there as well. And the third one was probably the most embarrassing. It was um, uh, the American general was called Henry Dearborn, quite often called Granny Dearborn, (laughs) because very slow, quite old and very slow, certainly slow of thought. And uh, his job was to march in across the border and to Montreal and to take Montreal. And uh, it just didn't happen. None of it happened. He had to levy loads of men from New England and the New Englanders uh, had fr- thriving trade with Britain. And so they re- their heart really, really wasn't in mm-hmm. this war. Mm-hmm. Lots of people from Washington and Baltimore and furthermore south, they were up for it. But people in New England, they, their hearts really weren't in this. They were quite loyal to the crown, if anything, the British crown, if anything. So they absolutely didn't want to march towards Montreal and start killing and having battles with with British soldiers, and so uh, sort of the ill-fated Granny Dearborn's attempt to <laughs> take Montreal just mm. absolutely failed. They didn't really get anywhere near it, um, and 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 so yeah, that first year of America trying to invade Canada was really an abject failure. Well, um, it sounds like it's showing the state of the American military at this point. The basically the disorganized or non-unified and almost, I don't want to say decrepit, but it seems like there's not a lot of very strong military leaders in the, uh, whatever this uh, army is for the Americas right now. Maybe they're uh, holdovers from the Revolutionary War. Is that kind of where the army is at this point? That is exactly it, pretty much. Their most senior guys are usually 
I think, if not always, but certainly usually uh, most of these guys that I've just mentioned are sort of revolutionary war uh, heroes. Mm. And now they're kind of a bit too old, a bit too past it, really. And mm. it's a whole different card game now. It's a completely different thing they're being asked to do. So Congress asked them to invade Canada in these three-pronged attack. <laughs> but, but there's no roads, for example. There's no real roads at that point. Um, and so it's, it's just extremely hard going. Congress is asking them to, to, to do not an impossible task, but a very, very, very difficult task. Um, on top of that, yeah, the actual army themselves, the men, uh, are militia, non-professional militiamen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cliche is how true it is, is up for debate and historians will argue about it quite vehemently sometimes. Uh, but the cliche is, is that these are part-time guys and quite a lot of their militia training is is uh, is is not very thorough. And mm. when you meet up for a bit of militia training, it just descends into drinking straight away. <laughs> and they're not used to marching in column or forming square or, or, or firing effective volleys or anything like that at all. Um, yeah, so you're asking uh, bad, relatively bad commanders uh, to command ill-trained troops to do a very, very difficult task. Yeah, through so yeah, in, in a sense, no wonder. Which is uh, um, largely controlled. Then that that brings to mind the Native Americans who are probably very adept at this non-road uh, territory. They have a lot of control, or at least are very adept at controlling that area. Absolutely. I mean, you're in their house. <laughs> you're yeah. in their back garden. <laughs> yeah. This is what they do. Um, there's a couple of examples. In fact, uh, I can't re- we haven't got enough time to go into details of all these different battles and things. But one of the things that the, uh, the, the, the Tecumseh Confederacy, uh, the, mainly the Shawnee Indians, um, uh, one of the things they would quite often do is be able to sneak up on an American position. Um, and suddenly you find that they're on top of you. Um, and all that sort of thing. It's kind of, kind of what they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, whenever they're given a chance, uh, they, you know, they do it effectively. Absolutely right. Um, and um, you, you know, the, the 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 Native Americans have been fighting for well since the 15th century, really. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. in fact, um, historians have said, uh, well, it's just, it's just simply true that once Tecumseh is ultimately defeated here. Um, it's the last time, really. That really is the last time that the American Indians, native, native uh, or First Nation folks, should we say? I don't know what's the most PC way of saying it. But it's the last time under Tecumseh that they really have uh, a, 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 a genuine say in the way wars might go. Um, okay. After this, they're just really entirely on the back foot. Um, Tecumseh really uh, embodies. Uh, mm. uh, uh, the, the last truly effective war leader for them. Um, okay. It's why he's memorialised in many ways. I think uh, well, there's the famous Civil War general uh, Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, you know, quite often people, uh, uh, quite often nations will idolise or, or romanticise their greatest enemies, their greatest foes. Mm. Um, I think there's statues of Tecumseh at the uh, US Navy Academy, um, and so even though he was beaten, he's held in extremely high regard. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps how the Brits think of Napoleon or some Brits think of Napoleon. Uh, you know, he was kind of a worthy enemy. You might hate him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might have, you know, you might think that it was correct that he was beaten. And uh, but but he was a worthy enemy. 
I think a lot of Americans who are aware of him, that's how they view Tecumseh. Hmm. Um, but getting on in the, in the, uh, the events of, of 1812, towards the end of 1812, there's um, an important naval engagement between the USS Constitution. Have you ever heard of the, the USS Constitution? It's, uh, not the, not the ship. Quite possibly the most famous ship. It's it's a heavy frigate, but it's extremely heavy. In fact, it was nicknamed Old Ironsides because its wooden sides could stop cannonball. Oh wow! <laughs> as, as though it were made from iron. Um, okay. And in fact, it still exists today. I believe could be wrong about this, but I believe it's actually still commissioned. One of one of, if not the oldest early nineteenth century frigate, which is actually still commissioned, it certainly yeah. still exists. You can go and visit the USS Constitution to, to this day, old Ironsides, and it had an engagement with a heavy British ship, HMS Guerriere. It's uh, one of the more famous naval engagements, the Constitution versus the Guerriere, and uh, the Constitution won that. And it is considered that is considered again uh, a great American victory. Uh, mm -hmm. So already here, you see, there's it's a, a bit of a roller coaster. Sometimes you're humiliated here and there. You lose when you really shouldn't have, or you didn't think you were going to, and then you win this some some great victories on other sides. And so it's really quite unpredictable. You, you know, like when you look at a history of say World War One or World War Two, most people know sort of the general sweep of events, and you mm -hmm. sort of know the way things are going. I, I'm thinking of maybe the war in the Pacific. You sort of know that Japan's going to be on the back foot pretty much all the time. You know, and it's just it's just a matter of time before America mm. wins. Well, this is much more of a ding dong back and forth. <laughs> yeah. It's much more of a roller coaster. You never really know what's going to come next. Um, yeah. Because as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, both sides, I think Britain and America are, are embarrassed, really, at various points. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, Britain isn't used to losing naval engagements we're really not used to it um and although the uss constitution is merely a frigate it's not a first-rate ship of the line it's way stronger than a normal frigate like i say it's it, you don't think that its size would be able to um withstand sort of point blank broadsides and yet it does i think at the end of that i heard someone say if i've got this right that there were sort of 12 cannonballs embedded in the side of the constitution <laughs> that didn't punch through and it, huh. we the brits just sort of couldn't believe that um so it does deserve its its moniker old ironsides yeah. i think um and at this point in in the british papers in the british media or in the british sort of public consciousness we were like who are these guys how you know how dare they beat us at sea three times in a row how <laughs> how dare they what upstarts <laughs> Uh, well, so so there's that. Uh, but as I mentioned before, the, the the navy once we're able to get uh, you know really engage big parts of our navy, it's kind of going to be tough for America because I think you guys had something in the order, depending on exactly when you want to count it and what ships you count. They had something in the order of eighteen or twenty two heavy frigates, heavy uh, f heavy heavy ships, war, or ships of war. Um, and we had like a couple of hundred, or, or, or again, depends on how you want to count it. I mean, our navy was more like a thousand ships. So it was as soon as we could get over there with any sort of numbers, it was it was it was going to be tough for the United States. Um, and yeah, because the war with Napoleon is still going on, uh, our sort of uh, our political leadership 
Spencer Percival, well, no, he's assassinated in Lord Liverpool. Um, it's sort of a, a secondary theatre of, of war. It's still Europe is still the most important thing. So we, yeah. Britain isn't able to send over a, really a giant uh, expeditionary force until 1814. Um, so although it's called oh. the War of 1812, a lot goes down, really, all the decisive actions go down in the year 1814. Um, so it's uh, probably not the most apt name yeah. to call the war, the war yeah. of 1812 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but um yeah i mean we can carry on with the narrative if you like or if you've got any yeah. sort of questions yeah, well, or... so but britain's also concerned with europe but they also have uh, holdings in the indian ocean and the pacific too oh, britain's yeah. a worldwide empire and uh you know and they're going around to africa to get all that tea and spices uh, up there so uh so britain's got concerns all over the place absolutely and yeah. an empire guess, where but, the sun never sets yeah exactly and there are uh, i'm sure that they're mostly concerned militarily with france and and europe but they also have uh, a lot of holdings all over the place so they are stretched probably not thin but they are stretched certainly Absolutely. No, that's absolutely the case. And um, it was it was quite a few years before this, but it was a real threat that Napoleon could invade Britain. In fact, he did assemble a big force uh, to do exactly that. Um, it's mm. quite a few years before this is before the Battle of Trafalgar, which is like 1805. So it's quite a, a few, few years before this. But it's not completely inconceivable that at some point Napoleon could or he certainly had designs on invading Britain, actually, the, the, our island. Um, so it's not a massive stretch um, to see it as a sort of an, him as an existential threat, even in the mm -hmm. year 1812, even by then. It was like, we, we sort of do need to be extremely vigilant. We do need to do everything in our power here to thwart Napoleon on every possible yeah. level. Yeah. Um, of course, his navy had been um, at, at the Battle of the Nile in Copenhagen and in finally in Trafalgar in 1805 had been completely, more or less completely destroyed. Okay. Um, um, so, but yeah, it was absolutely vitally important just from a strategic point of view that Britain remained um, utterly dominant on the seas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. But um, yeah, so even though uh, Jonathan has sort of stabbed us in the back and had tried mm -hmm. to invade Canada while we were at a very, very low ebb, uh, we couldn't just do something about it immediately, really. So our forces yeah. in uh, Upper Canada and Lower Canada were sort of uh, left to do as best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, glorious from the Canadian point of view that they were able to, to repel the Americans in that first yeah. year. Yeah. Um, but in 1813, sort of the years roll around and um, the US try to take Detroit again. Uh, well, sorry, bounce across the border at Detroit uh, into Canada. Um, and that fails again. They're repulsed. And in fact, uh, repulsed all the way down to the River Raisin, which is quite a lot further south than Detroit. And um, the Indians um, massacred quite a lot of people at the River Raisin. Um, and uh, apparently it was a, a, sort of a famous war cry after that to remember the River Raisin, <laughs> remember mm. how the Indians uh, massacred us at, at the Raisin. Um, so that's sort of, again, if you're a, a real history nerd, that's probably something some people might know uh, from, from this period. Um, but, but, but by now, even though Britain couldn't really put together a massive flotilla or expeditionary force to invade uh, continental United States, we did just start blockading 
the whole of the eastern seaboard really from okay. from delaware down to florida just to yeah. <laughs> try and well, we did blockade the, the whole eastern seaboard and um, you know that does begin to maybe uh, cripple is an overstatement but it does it does begin to hurt the american economy quite quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and within a year or within 18 months or so it's really quite serious really quite mm-hmm. seriously crippling the economy and uh, uh, mr madison's war uh, became quite unpopular quite quickly um as i say okay. it was never popular in new england uh, so, um, yeah, the, the, the popular opinion becomes part of it. Uh, but the Chesapeake comes back into the story in 1813. The USS mm-hmm. Chesapeake I mentioned earlier. Um, it ends up having a, an engagement with one of our ships, HMS Shannon. And the captain of the Shannon um, was one of these uh, taskmasters who <laughs> was obsessed with drilling his men in uh, delivering broadsides obsessed like constantly drilled them to be very very efficient and very very good at, at gunnery <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so when the the shannon and the, and the chesapeake face off um the chesapeake is is defeated to put it mildly um it's absolutely annihilated more or less mm. um, <laughs> um and there's kind of a famous episode from that where the, the captain of the Chesapeake, Captain James Lawrence, um, was, was supposed to shout, or did, he did shout, um, don't give up the ship. That's the quote. Don't give up the ship. Um, because that became a rallying cry for the Americans going forward. Um, again, if you're interested in US naval history, that would certainly be something people would know about. Don't give up the ship. He died moments later. He was killed moments later. Mm-hmm. And the ship was given up within mm. about 11 minutes of, of mm. Captain Lawrence famously crying, don't give up the ship. But nevertheless, yeah. it was, you know, it's a symbolic thing. Um, and it was, it really was a battle cry for them in the rest of that war. And in fact, going okay. forward, really, you know, it's kind of a glorious thing, isn't it? When people die in battle, when they're sort of martyred, for want of a better word, and, and they do it, you know, with their, sticking their chest out, brassing it out. Um, you know, there's, there's something glorious about that, I think, most people think. Um, yeah. Uh, but well, so there's another couple of defeats for the Americans there. But they have, if we want to put one in the in the column of American victories, um, there was the, in Lake Erie because you've got the Great Lakes over there. Yeah. Do you know American uh, geography, the sort of the, the Great yeah, Lake I know that. region? I know. Yeah, uh, there's sort of five yeah. Great Lakes, yeah. and one of the most important ones, or the most important one strategically, was Lake Erie. Arguably, some historians might argue that, but one of the most important ones was Lake Erie. Uh, whoever controlled the lake uh, could, could, could control the region to some degree or to a large degree, really. Uh, but of course, it's a it's a landlocked lake. You can't you can't really get uh, sort of our uh, Atlantic fleet down there. So both sides have to build ships on the lake. And there's, sort of, uh, there's sort of a race going on between the United States and the Canadian British co- coalition who can build more ships on Lake Erie the quickest. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, I there's think this yeah, I, I huge military militarization and stockpiling in this landlocked uh, Great Lake. Yeah, 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 and and uh, well, the Americans actually get a, a, a really important victory actually on Lake Erie in 1813. Uh, a kind of famous guy, Commodore Oliver Perry, Oliver Hazard Perry, um, wins some important engagements on Lake Erie, and it kind of. Yeah, it's not exactly the beginning of the end, 
uh, it doesn't exactly put the whole Great Lake Great Lake region into the hands of the of the United States, but it's 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 very important. I won't call it absolutely decisive, but it's extremely important. It sort of sets the tone. It sort of gives all the impetus to the United States in that theater. There's okay. three great theaters, historians say. There's the Great Lake Theater, there's sort of the Eastern Seaboard, and then there's sort of the Gulf. Uh, the Gulf of Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. which comes into it much more. Um, I mean, there's a big battle at New Orleans, for example. One of the things I wanted to say just broadly is um, I think that, well, it's true to say that even though the numbers involved of actual combatants and deaths are relatively small, the theatres involved are gigantic. In one way, it's the opposite of the Western Front in World War I, where the numbers involved are gigantic, but the battlefields are very small. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the entire war there is really quite confined and small, whereas the War of 1812 is the opposite. The numbers are pretty small, but it takes place over a vast... Yeah. Us, well, well, from Canada, from sort of Montreal and the St. Lawrence River, all the way down to sort of Pensacola and New Orleans, yeah. uh, which is just vast, isn't it? It's absolutely vast. Um, so that's really something to mention. Well, and, this, uh, this particular war is uh, establishing a lot of identities. It's establishing... Um, how America is going to be going forward and then it's establishing how Canada is going to be for going forward. And then it's also kind of drawing a line maybe in a sense with what Britain uh, can expect in the future of the Americas. That is absolutely true. Yes. I think nearly all historians would absolutely agree that although the numbers are small, you know, really relatively small, I think, you know, 10, 20,000 casualties total, something in that order. It sets the tone for, for generations. Mm-hmm. Well, it sets, it sets the tone until today in some ways. Yeah. yeah. The identity of the United States uh, is, is forged in many ways. Um, yeah. They go from uh, uh, an undeniably a second rate naval power to yeah. not that. Yeah. yeah. They, they go from being a, a country which is really in the shadow of Europe in all sorts of ways. You know, Florida still belongs to Spain, for example. They've only just bought most of the Midwest off of France. They go from sort of that kind of identity, that territory, to just being the United States as, as we know it today. Yeah. It's manifest destiny and that it's really, it's not in anyone's shadow anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think the War of 1812 marks that. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. with the Declaration of Independence and the founding of our country, that was that that started the identity. But this passage through 1812 really congeals America as taking itself seriously as a power, as, as yeah. uh, something with standing in the world and kind of concretizes that identity and then and then establishes what we're going to do with the rest of uh, America, the Americas. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely the case. And I think also, uh, well, what it does, as I say, at the beginning, where you sort of kind of humiliatingly turned back thrice on the Canadian border. Um, and after that, you start taking drilling, the drilling of men and having mm-hmm. a professional army a lot more seriously. You know, that never stopped. <laughs> no. That never stopped. Um, no. And uh, I mean, well, obviously today there's a lot, a lot has obviously happened in the intervening years, <laughs> the world wars, to, <laughs> obviously. But, it's been a you know, busy America, couple centuries. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, you know, today, America, the US Navy is absolutely, absolutely dominant, isn't it? 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you look at Wikipedia, you look at the numbers of aircraft carriers and all sorts of things. Well, ever since World War II, or maybe a little bit before, um, the United States Navy is uh, no one can come close to it. Absolutely. It's just completely dominant. Um, and I think maybe the first seeds, the first kernels of that is, is in the War of 1812 when they realise, you know, we need, we really do need to take seriously having some extremely heavy frigates, something that, something that isn't going to be an embarrassment, something where we're not just going to be rolled over, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. And I think also, I think of the War of 1812, there's quite, quite a few figures, quite a few individual men um, who come out of it that go on to be important. I mean, a couple of presidents, uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, William Henry Harrison, both go on to be president. Uh, they're, they're very important re- figures in the War of 1812 in, in different ways. I mean, um, Henry, Williams, Henry William Harrison, sort of up more north, um, taking on Tecumseh. They're sort of kind of a famous meeting uh, <laughs> where it's kind of been eulogised on both sides between Tecumseh and Harrison, uh, mm. both sort of, uh, they didn't see eye to eye. Uh, I mean, Andrew Jackson, uh, like Harrison, is is thought of as, uh, not thought of well in terms of how they treated the natives, mm. uh, but they were men of their time. That, anyway, that's a whole different story. Andrew mm. Jackson, a bit, a bit more south, he's down in sort of um, New Orleans way, um, well, actually, William Henry Harrison comes into it. At this point, there's a place called Fort Meigs, Fort Meigs, however you want to pronounce it. Hmm. Um, and the British try, and this is up near near Detroit, up in that sort of Great Lake Theatre, and the uh, w- where some American generals have sort of surrendered the year before ignominiously. Uh, Harrison is not going to not going to let that happen. He's more much more a man of steel. <laughs> He's prepared to fight and die, um, and in fact, in fact, repels the Brits at Fort Meigs. And um, I've heard one or two historians say that is sort of the beginning of the end for British Canadian uh, attempts to go into America okay. and, you know, take American territory off of them. Um, Har- Henry William Harrison really puts an end to that. And, and, and as you may know, he goes on to become president. Um, so he really forges his, his uh, reputation in this war. Um, uh, also in 1813, there's, uh, there's the Battle of the Thames, obviously a different River Thames to the one that runs through London. Um, I think there's many River Thames in the world, many Londons <laughs> in the world. And there's quite a few Londons in America, isn't there? Um, but yeah, there's a Battle of the River Thames um, where, uh, again, that's a victory for the US. Um, and, and, and they, they re- reclaimed Detroit. It was, it was in the hands of the Canadians at that point. Um, but it, it's at that point, it's around that time, around the Battle of the Thames, uh, where Tecumseh is killed. Um, the Brits and the Canadians retreat, decide it's a, a tactical time for a t- tactical retreat. And Tecumseh mm-hmm. says, I can't, we can't. This is, I've got nowhere to run to. It's, I've, got okay. to live or, I've got to live or die here. Um, you know, I've got nowhere else to go. This is my land. And um, some mm. Kentucky men, some uh, cavalry from Kentucky, ride him down and he's killed. And as you can imagine, that's, again, sort of eulogised and romanticised uh, by various people over the ages, the, 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 the death of Tecumseh. Because as, as I mentioned earlier, his, his confederacy, the Shawnee confederacy, was really the last serious, you know, really, really serious attempt for the uh the native americans to be a power in their own right um mm-hmm. so the death of tecumseh is hmm. sad i suppose depending on how you look at it of course 
Um, and it's in 1813, towards the end of 1813, that the, the, uh, it's kind of an important point, is that the US burned down a town that's on the other side of the Canadian border called York. Um, they burn York to the ground. Um, and that, that, that town of York is to modern-day Toronto. Oh. Uh, okay. Some people might not be aware that the uh, US troops burnt <laughs> Toronto to the ground in 1813, but uh, they did. But that was one of the things where you, that was kind of um, – you don't really do that. You don't that's necessarily, overstepping. Yeah. Yeah, you don't really do that. You don't really burn the big towns or big cities that are full of freeborn Christians necessarily. That's a little bit beyond the power. It's not really not really done, um, but they did it. And it's again that kind of sets the tone. You know, when one side in a war does something that's a, a, a bit egregious, um, it sort of gives free reign for the other side to do the same sort yeah. of thing, doesn't it? You know, yeah. and you get a, a sort of a one-upmanship of who can be more cruel yeah. and, and sadistic, <laughs> and. Um, I wouldn't say it started there, certainly not, um, but it does set the tone for some things that, that happened going forward. Um, there's a big battle, the Battle of the Horseshoe Bend. Um, this, is, this is where Andrew, one of, the, one of the points where Andrew Jackson, who later becomes president, um, uh, comes into it uh, because he, he, he won at that battle. Uh, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, beating a lot of Native American Indians. Um, they were called the, the Red Stick Confederacy. Um, and with the victory at Horseshoe Bend, the United States is able to extort, maybe a bit strong, but are able to have a treaty which gives them a lot of land. I mean, something like something on the order of 23 million acres worth of land. Mm. Basically, most of Alabama, big parts of modern day Georgia, uh, which is sort of all ceded to the okay. United States after that one battle. So again, it's really quite an important one really for the, the, the founding of the United States as we know it. Yeah. You know, if that as, battle as gone differently, sovereign, the sovereignty of America is forged in, in mm, that. Mm. In yeah. Yeah. Sense. Sorry, not their birth, but you know, it's just a part of the story, certainly a big part of the story of the United States as we know it today. You know, yeah. if that battle, the battle of the Horseshoe Bend had gone differently, you know how different history might have been you know how uh, you know it's not it seems inevitable doesn't it that america were always going to that the, the united states were always going to control all of continental north america mm -hmm. but um you know if one thing here or there had gone differently who knows but mm -hmm. you know i think that's i think the battle of horseshoe bend is is much more important than history often gives it credit for you know some of these things are almost lost to history um, and uh, and it doesn't really make sense. I don't know why. I don't know why that's not as important as Yorktown or something. You know. Yeah. Um, well, uh, just just to back up just a tiny bit. Sure, sure. Um, at this point, Spain's just no longer taken seriously. It sounds like they haven't been taken seriously for quite some time. Uh, Napoleon kind of steamrolls them, but as a world power, they have kind of eroded their any sort of actual claim on any of the americas is that uh oh no though like i say they still do control there's a governor of florida that's spanish uh, okay but yeah the 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 high watermark of their empire is long gone i mean long yeah. gone um they're really puppets they're the 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 two kingdoms of, of spain and portugal are, uh, are ruled over by imbeciles <laughs> at this point oh. <laughs> they're actually uh inbred uh, an, an inbred family, uh, yeah. which uh, they have the, the mind of, uh, of children. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really quite <laughs> embarrassing. Um, <laughs> the Habsburgs. And um, yeah, Napoleon, 
many years before this, good 10 years or slightly less before this, had marched his or sent some of his marshals down into the Iberian Peninsula, into Spain, and just annexed it. Yeah, okay. So, and he allowed them, he allowed them to still nominally control things, nominally control their, their holdings in the rest of the world, like Florida, for example. Yeah, okay. Um, but, but, yeah, it was only on paper, really. Yeah, okay. I mean... Um, but they're, they're, yeah, they're still technically still around. Um, yeah, I mean, again, in 1813, US tried to invade Montreal again, um, cool. but they, they try and go up the St. Lawrence River, but they do it so very slowly, so <laughs> very, very slowly that, um, again, it's a bit like in 1812 when one or, one or two of the commanders are sort of kind of embarrassingly inept a bit, really, to be fair huh. to them. Um, and so, yeah, their, their second attempt to, in, in, you know, invade and take Montreal fails um, again. Although they do win uh, an important engagement on Lake Ontario, Sackett's Harbour. You may have heard of Sackett's Harbour uh, when the US win an important victory there. So it is a, it is a back and forth. It's not, uh, that's why I find it interesting when you look at it in detail, if you read or listen to an audio book, um, it is, and you don't know what's coming. It is interesting because yeah. you genuinely don't know, oh, who's going to win this one? Um, yeah, I think it gives yeah. a bit more excitement to it. Um, um, sorry, my laptop's gone off here. Um, so yeah, by, by 1814, the last year of the war, more or less, um, um, it's kind of a different story by 1814 because at this point, um, but by, uh, by spring 1814, uh, the, the British and, and the Russians are in Paris. Napoleon is defeated for the first time, certainly. <laughs> um, uh, for the first of two times he's defeated. So at that point, by, certainly by sort of summer 1814, Britain and the political overlords in London, in Whitehall, decide, OK, we can send a massive chunk. Napoleon is finally defeated. Let's send a massive chunk of our navy across the pond with tens of thousands of guys, you know, like 40,000 regular troops that are battle-hardened veterans from the Napoleonic Wars. Let's send them over and we really will... Uh, give Jonathan, Jonathan a drubbing like, up, a, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a naughty spaniel. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's what happens. I mean, I remember thinking when I was a kid at one point that um, after the Revolutionary War, or the War of Independence, what if Britain had just had the political will just to, you know, not end there after Yorktown? What if we decided to actually send over a massive army just to take America back again? Well, yeah. they did. <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> that is what happened. Um, uh, but it, it just it doesn't go particularly well. I mean, well, to begin with, for the year of 1814, there's, a, there's the Battle of Lundy's Lane, which is, again, in the Niagara region, um, just on the Canadian side in Ontario. And um, I've heard people say that this is sort of like the War of 1812 in microcosm um, because it's just really confused and some troops start firing on each other and, and a couple of generals uh, get accidentally killed or captured in the darkness. And, and although the US withdraw... Um, it's actually a tactical victory for them, uh, or strategic victory for them. And, um, but both sides are kind of embarrassed and it's indecisive and things kind of end up as they started, more or less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody wins. There's a, there's a bunch of blood <laughs> and a bunch of embarrassment to go around on all sides um, and, and nobody really wins. Um, but you could say, if, it, if you really had to put money on one side or the other, you would say you'd have to chalk it down to a US victory. So Stop when, it to a close in bit. Sorry, 1814, when Britain decides to 
actually take this uh, seriously and invest in it, where do they concentrate? Uh, are they going to go from the north down or are they going to just take all of – I don't know which direction we're coming from. They're, they're just going to kind of <laughs> evenly take over uh, or, or go after America. Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. And it's sort of, um, there's sort of a three-pronged attack. They essentially go from north to south. They mean to attack um, uh, from Canada down into New York way. Um, they also mean to attack New Orleans because New Orleans is and was um, vitally important for trade because everything that comes down the Mississippi River, mm -hmm. in other words, everything from sort of the, the, the interior of the United States, all can come down through the Mississippi River and it ends up at New Orleans. So if you control, whoever controls the, the harbour of New Orleans and sort of Mobile, places like this, Pensacola, whoever controls that, but particularly New Orleans itself, whoever controls that really can control the commerce um, of a lot, uh, loads of the commerce. Mm -hmm. of continental United States. So it, it's part of our strategy, part of the British strategy to, um, yeah, attack all places like New York and uh, particularly New Orleans. Okay. So. Um, the, Where, so where's the third third prong? So uh, kind of New York through Canada. And then, yeah, come uh, down through Canada in, yeah. by land. That's yeah. one. Uh, by sea, New York. Sort of, okay. so, so hopefully meet okay. up kind of there and then yeah. a third one or if we're successful at new york the same sort of body of men come down to new orleans wow. um okay. and and oh, the brits are very quite um confident i mean again hubris here <laughs> because if you hadn't realized there hasn't been that many really bad humiliating defeats for the brits but it, it's coming it's in the pipeline Oh, no. <laughs> I'm afraid we're running slightly short of time, so I have to maybe go through it a little bit quickly. But um, basically, all those things fail. Basically, all those things fail. It's a reversal of fortunes for all sorts of different reasons. When they came down through um, uh, the invasion of New York, um, the, the Brits lose at Plattsburgh. Um, it's near near Lake or on Lake Cham Champlain and um, the Hudson River. Uh, the the, the Governor of Canada, uh, Sir George Prevost, Prevo, have you pronounced that, um, is uh, sort of strategically defeated on the lakes, on Lake Champlain, um, and has to, is forced to sort of retreat. Um, and so he's kind of defeated at Plattsburgh. So that first prong from Canada over land is turned back by the Americans. Mm. Um, and then the Brits do try to, or do, well, what they well, okay. One of the things they decide is that Baltimore is a really important city, really one of the most important cities, along with New York on the East Coast, far more important than Washington. Washington D.C. is uh, a new city; it's hardly anything. It's uh, the, the capital had always been Philadelphia, um, but only about ten years before this, ten fifteen years before this, they decided that Washington D.C. was going to be the new capital. And they're going to build it up from scratch. Uh, people called it uh, sort of just a, 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 a sheep pasture, things like this. There wasn't much there. There was a white. There was the White House. There was. A type of capital building. It wasn't the capital building that we know now with the big dome, but there was all sorts of federal buildings there, a treasury, all sorts of things, and the White House. And we had this big flotilla um, under the command of an Admiral Cochrane or, or, or Cockburn, Coburn, however you say it. Mm -hmm. Or there's a General Cochrane and an Admiral 
uh, Cockburn and a General Ross. And anyway, this Admiral Coburn um, realises that Washington, D.C. is almost entirely undefended. Well, it is pretty much undefended, more or less. I mean, it does have some defence. The, the Secretary of War at the time, the U.S. Secretary of War, Secretary Armstrong, didn't think that we would invade. It's not worth it. There's nothing there. Why would, why would the Brits, uh, you know, attack Washington? There's really, it's not worth it. There's nothing there. But it, it kind of, for morale, it's kind of important. Yeah. Uh, for for a, uh, symbolically, it's very important, um, uh, and so yeah, they did just decide sort of on on the hoof uh, to attack Washington D.C. It was never in the plan. They'd never planned to do it a, a year ahead of time or anything. But they realised that it's sort of undefended, um, and so they send in. It's like multiple. It's like the the British 85th Light Infantry, the 44th Regiment of Foot, um, land uh, uh, at Bladensburg. Uh, you know, a place called Bladensburg near Washington, D.C., in mm -hmm. the, the Chesapeake Bay. Um, there's a thing called the, the Bladensburg Races because the, the, the small amount of American troops that were there defending it ran away. I mean, you, you can't blame them. They were absolutely outnumbered and outgunned. Um, mm -hmm. But it has been called, quote, the greatest disgrace ever dealt to American arms hmm. because the Brits <laughs> marched on Washington, D.C. and burnt it down, burnt down the White House. Oh, um, okay. I don't know if this is new to any of our listeners, um, yeah, but, but, but the, the only the America, time America has really been, uh, Washington DC has ever been yeah. uh, attacked and destroyed like that. It was there. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, I, America had set that bar when they burnt Toronto down. Exactly. That was the, the, that was the very next thing I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, it was it was like, OK, you did that. You did. You burnt down Toronto in, in Canada, our Canada. So this yeah. is what you get kind of thing you know um and uh, i mean washington dc is quite small i think there's only about eight thousand people live there um and and the british troops left the next day mm. um some of the stories are that dolly madison refused to leave for quite a while she's one of the last to flee and uh, or one of the sort of famous anecdotes is there was a, a, a very large full-scale portrait of washington that she insisted was uh, rescued from the white house before the, the british turned up uh, there, there's all sorts of uh, these little anecdotes and stories that are eulogized over the years good old dolly madison refused to mm. give in um uh, but yeah i mean yeah the white house in washington was raised um and so yeah uh, that's why i said at the beginning it's kind of embarrassing that's obviously a little bit embarrassing for, well, it's embarrassing for the americans it's embarrassing for the brits as well you know we're supposed to have a special relationship we're supposed to be brothers or cousins or whatever we're supposed mm -hmm. to fight side by side um and yet we sort of did that <laughs> you know it's uh, yeah. uh for subsequent history it doesn't really look good <laughs> you know yeah. so um, does that but, does that change relations the that symbolic uh, victory or just uh complete annihilation at Washington? Does that cause Congress and the leadership of America's to start rethinking things? Is that when... Um, no, not really. No, no. Because, I mean, the British leave the very next day. They sort of... It's like a short, sharp sucker punch almost <laughs> on some level. Um, and so James Madison's back in the White House or the, the charred remains of the White House the next day. So it's like, oh, this was a, a horrible, terrible blow but it's not really, it doesn't really change mm -hmm. war aims or anything okay. like that. Okay. But, but one of the point, uh, uh, one, one of the reasons for going up Lake Champlain and in there is, uh, sorry, Chesapeake Bay and is, is to really get Baltimore. Baltimore was a key, like lots and lots okay. of commerce and industry was at Baltimore. And you really want to take Baltimore at all costs in the British press. They were like, 
Baltimore's a doomed city. If we get over to the East Coast, you know, you know what we're going to destroy first, if we can, Baltimore, because that's going to really cripple Jonathan. <laughs> okay. But in order to take Baltimore, first they had to get past a, a star fort, which was at a place called Fort St. Henry, uh, M- McHenry, sorry, Fort McHenry. Um, had to get past the star fort at Fort McHenry before you could really get on the road to Baltimore. Um, and so the Brits bombard this Fort McHenry all day and all night expecting to you know sweep it aside relatively easily uh, but they're unable to um, and it's surprising that in the morning the the, the, the flag still there the Star Spangled Banner is still flying over Fort McHenry it's, it's quite surprising um, that the, the, the sort of fortitude the Americans have there or the, uh, mm. the, the will to survive the will not to give up Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, that is where the, the song, or the, originally the poem of the Star Spangled Banner comes from, the, the bombs bursting in air. This is Fort, St. Fort McHenry. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the lyrics. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's where that comes from. That we, the Brits were trying to get to Baltimore and it never happened because Fort McHenry refused to give in, you know, against the odds, heavily against the odds, being yeah. bombarded for hours on end by a massive uh, war flotilla. I mean, it is quite something. Um, yeah, Francis Scott Key. Um, but one of our really important generals, uh, the, the General Ross, uh, was killed in and around this point, the Battle of North Point. He was killed. And it's one of those instances where when the, the uh, commanding officer is killed, it really changes morale for the whole army, for the whole expedition, the whole campaign. Sort okay. of the, the, the tenor of it is changed because this one commanding officer is killed. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, just to... Uh, unfortunately, we've got to draw it to a close relatively soon. Um, but going down into the south, the, the, the Gulf of Mexico theatre, there are battles at Mobile, which is in modern Alabama, and Pensacola, which is in modern Florida, uh, where the Brits sort of uh, push aside American forces there. Um, and because the real key, as I said, is, is New Orleans. Um, but, and it's at New Orleans where Andrew Jackson, that famously becomes President Andrew Jackson, quite possibly because of this his reputation is forged uh because uh, they stop the brits outside new orleans the battle of new orleans again completely against the odds this is a massive embarrassment for the brits here that should not have happened um Hmm. you know we got like 60 we sent sort of 60 ships eight thousand men under the command of sir edward packenham who's a quite famous important commander um there's no way that the 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 the, the ragtag militia of new orleans would be able to stop them and they did hmm. and again this is something which is i think you know th- this sort of thing is what forges uh is part of what forges the, the american character i think um uh, you know gr- great victories against the odds like that nations mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. to remember them yeah, don't yeah. they um yeah. i think that's important i mean the u.s did have five thousand men so that, but you know, they're outnumbered on paper. They're outclassed. They're outgunned, um, and yet it's one of those things. Sometimes you get a killing field. You know, sometimes like at Gettysburg or or at the Somme on the Battle of the Somme. Sometimes you get a, just a killing field where a small number, relatively small number of men, can mow down a vast number of men. 
um, you know, sometimes. Yeah. And and it seems like something like that is what happened just outside New Orleans, where the US sharpshooters or free shooters, what today we'd call snipers, are just very good at their job. <laughs> very, very good at their job. I mean, Sir Edward Packenham is killed there. Just a, a, a US okay. free shooter is able to just sort of take him out at range. And again, that sort of can sway, that can sort of turn the whole feel of a campaign or a particular battle mm. or a particular engagement when the commanding officer is, it falls. So um, the, the Brits lose some key leaders or, or some storied uh, heroes from their other uh, campaigns. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of these guys are, are, are veterans of the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, mm -hmm. Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington himself, um, uh, they, they wanted to give him overall command of this, and he refused. <laughs> he said, "He just said, I don't know really anything about America. Uh, you know, I'm kind of exhausted a bit from mm. Napoleon. I, mm -hmm. I, no thanks." <laughs> but mm. yeah, they wanted. They did send a lot of the leading lights over there to do it. Yeah, it was sort of like the cherry on the cake. Now we've done away with old Boney. Now we can go mm. over to, across the pond to the states and. Mm. Uh, and, and teach them a lesson. And yeah. it didn't happen. I mean, this is, I mean, I, we started this with talking about quite a few embarrassments with the United States up in Canada, and it ends with really quite a bad British embarrassment, you know, mm. uh, being turned away at Fort McHenry um, and being being turned away in sort of upper New York and then, and then being beaten outside New Orleans. I mm. mean, it really is, it really shouldn't have happened and and yet that's where it, where it, that's how it went down and finally there's a treaty of ghent and there's a lot we have run out of time unfortunately but uh, there's a lot uh, talked about by historians about how the war ended the treaty of ghent uh yeah. which is in modern day belgium i believe was was signed before the battle of new orleans even happened <laughs> so uh, but because it takes over. a couple well, yeah, but because it takes a couple of months for word to get from Europe to the United States, literally a couple of months, six weeks, a couple of months, um, things can overlap. And that's what it was. The Treaty of Ghent had been signed, but the news hadn't got out to the United States yet. And so mm. historians argue over uh, how important, if, if at all, the Battle of New Orleans was. Um, but in the end, at the very end of it all, the, uh, they, they decide that there will be a, a, a status quo antebellum. In other words, the situation as it existed before the war began, we shall return to that. Oh, with the inscriptions, uh, the impressments? Uh, oh, the, well, no, not that. So that's the okay. thing. That's why people can argue. People can say, oh, well, America won the war because if nothing else, Britain did give up the impressments. <laughs> but then Britain go, Brit British historians might say, well, but we defeated Napoleon, so we didn't need to do them anymore. <laughs> you know? And, and unfortunately, we, we have run out of time, but we could really scratch the surface on that because you could talk about just that, really, who won and why and to what extent they did or didn't win or draw. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, there's whole books, there's honestly whole books written about that. Well, be, before we wrap up, mm. did the uh, the relations, what, what's the relations, the general feeling between the United States and the Britain uh, and Britain after they kind of stop fighting? Are, are they kind of, they just kind of go back and they kind of both shrug and forget about it? We'll, we'll just go back to... <laughs> things or, or no, is there really. kind of some simmering animosity still no no from the american point of view um they i can't remember the exact date of the battle of new orleans but um 
they they loved it. Apparently, there were two, only two main national holidays. One was the 5th of July and the other one was the date which commemorates the Battle of New Orleans. It was a great, great, great victory for them. Okay. Uh, Mr. Madison could claim he won the war. He can claim he gave the all-powerful British Empire a bloody nose, mm. sent them packing. So the Battle of New Orleans at the time was a massive, massive victory for the United States and they absolutely loved it. And it's only really the fact that there's, you've got the Civil War and then the World Wars that have so utterly eclipsed it. And until the Civil War, um, the War of 1812 was, was very much a, a, a big W for the United States, an yeah. absolute win. And okay. was, they're very proud of it, I think, quite rightly in some ways, I think. Um, but from the British point of view, it was, it was it's, the whole thing's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of let's almost sort of like, let's forget that happened. Let's mm-hmm. sort of, let's really just talk about Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. Those, and, that, those years, that's just Napoleon. Yeah. And something yeah. happened out in America, but don't, don't yeah. worry about what. It's, uh, it's not a big deal. <laughs> but uh, America gets really serious about controlling their own. Uh, the eastern seaboard and uh, yeah, with their yeah, with their yeah, navy yeah. and say okay we're we're no longer going to be in position where people can stop our trade and and hobble us in that way that's it that's it I th- it's totally fair to say that america before and after the war of 1812 is, is really quite different in character if nothing else i think that's fair to say they're, 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 this is glib but yeah they're taking themselves a lot more seriously yeah. um you know they, they they know now they know they don't think they don't hope but they know that they're a force to be reckoned with now yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. and uh, and no longer will they have their men uh, abducted, enslaved, impressed, whatever you, however you want to say it, by, by the Brits. Um, mm. uh, no longer, uh, all, all sorts of things, no longer will they have their trade uh, screwed with by the Brits. They'll have complete control over the Gulf. And, and, then, um, and then it also sets up uh, the conditions for America to uh, kind of take over the continental uh, Europe right. from the, the Native Americans and say, okay, well, we have to it. take the, them seriously and, and take yeah. them out or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Benjamin, unfortunately, we do have to yeah. bring it to an end here. There are yeah. people that need to go home. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you so I much for your time. It was great to hang out. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's all great to talk to you. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Yeah. Uh, you've, been, you've been very patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I'm eating it up. This is so fun. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.